Right. Good morning, everybody. Um, thank you to uh, everybody who's come so far, Knut, and uh, thank you to the IMO Secretary General. Um, we have a very interesting panel, I think, um, for you now. Um, collectively, these people on stage, uh, I roughly calculated off the back of the fag packet this morning, uh, responsible for around 1,000 vessels across most major trade lanes. Um, so when we talk about the decisions that the uh, industry needs to take, uh, when it comes to the efficiency of decarbonisation, all these big juicy topics that we're going to be tackling this week, um, these are the people that are going to be taking those decisions. Um, and while I don't want to put words in their mouth, I don't think they have any good decisions to be made. Um, there are sound strategic uh, bets, I would say, but ultimately, I think we're still in the realm of talking about the least worst options in search of optionality, a hedge bet, if you like. Um, whether we're talking about dual fuel or retrofitting the existing fleet, um, ship owners are essentially aiming to build as much flexibility into their fleets as possible, because the real issue here is fuel availability. Sustainable fuels are currently not globally available. We know that. No spot market exists. A vessel capable of burning sustainable fuel is unlikely to generate value from that capacity until that fuel becomes widely available. Now, that poses a real dilemma for these people. Um, do nothing, well, it's not exactly viable in today's climate, uh, or invest to adapt, uh, which realistically is going to destroy value in the short term. Finding that right balance is challenging. And no matter how many ships these people here, they control, um, collectively, you in the room control more, there is a reality here that we need to acknowledge. The structural challenges of decarbonisation cannot be solved by individual ship owners. The relationship between these owners the cargo interests who are represented here as well, that is going to be key to resolving the contractual and financial incentives that are going to allow genuine collaboration, that word that we're going to hear a lot about this week, and a more efficient fleet, regardless of the fuels that we're actually putting in the tank. It's almost a byproduct of that discussion. So, enough of me. Let's move on to the panel and see what they think. Um, what are the least worst decisions that you guys have been making? Um, Future-proofing shuttle tankers with a keen eye on carbon capture, we have... Mr. Ingvild uh, Seder, President and CEO of Altera Infrastructure. Uh, finding efficiency through scale, um, we have uh, uh, Khalid Youssef Almad from uh, Bari Ship Management, um, helping ship owners improve their emissions performance and assisting charters to uh, finding more efficient uh, vessels in the dry bulk fleet. We have Christian Bonfils, um, Chief Executive of uh, CPP, representing the world's largest container fleet uh, and a fearsome program of efficiency measures already well underway. We had Mr. Baddar from uh, MSC. And finally, we have uh, Lassie Christofferson from uh, Wallenius Willemsen, uh, who I understand recently said in an interview that he is not going to rest until shipping has reached net zero, uh, a promise that could keep him working for several years. I think you may be quite old by the time you're retiring on that bet. Um, but I'm going to start with you, Bud, if you don't mind, because I can't think of a better illustration of this, this dilemma that the industry faces right now. You know, you represent what I would describe as you know, an ambitious large company, the largest container fleet in the world. You are ready to invest. Uh, you are already making strides towards this 2050 goal that you have as a company. Um, but when we spoke recently, you told me that technology was not the blocker anymore to shipping's decarbonisation. And yet, you have a lot of very difficult decisions ahead of you. So start us off by you know, explaining why you're not waiting, but equally, you're probably not able to move as fast as you really want to. Um, 
what is it that you're doing to, to get that flexibility in? You know, is this a hedge bet as far as you're concerned? Uh, thank you, Richard. And, um, good morning, everyone. Can we have some volume? Um, good morning, everyone. It's a, a pleasure to be here. Um, you know, I like to think of it as not choosing among bad choices, but rather uh, managing the risk in a very uncertain environment. So maybe a different way of saying the same thing. But either way, it, it, it's not an enviable task. And uh, of that number of ships that Richard mentioned, I mean, we have about 730 uh, container ships, uh, a few row rows. Uh, we're the third largest cruise line in the world. We just took delivery of our, our latest cruise ship. Uh, so we've got 22 of those. We've got 24 ocean-going ferries. We've got uh, tugboats. We've got high-speed craft ferries. So almost all of the dilemmas that ship owners are facing in their various sectors, we've internally had to face. And really, there's no perfect solution at the moment. If there was, we'd all latch onto it, and we'd all be doing it. Everything is still under development, and I do think that there's a race going on between the technology development side and being ready to accept the fuels, and then on the other hand, the development, creation of the midstream, and actual delivery of the fuels on board so we can use them. And those two races have to merge at some point. And, and my comment to you, Richard, was meant to say, I feel very comfortable that on the technology side, it's winning the race by far right now. And that I feel very comfortable that by the time the fuels we really need to make the transition are available at scale and in a marketable sort of way, um, we're going to have the technology in place and available and, and, and proven to use it. But there's still work to be done there. For example, um, with ammonia, we're really just now developing testbed data that we don't have yet for how this will perform in engines and how much pilot fuel will be needed and addressing the toxicity concerns. Uh, all of the fuels have some challenges. So I don't mean to pick, pick one out, um, but the technology readiness is at different levels for different fuels, but I feel comfortable it's winning the race. So what do we do? Right now, you can't sit around and wait. That's not an option in, in our opinion. We, we have to continue to invest in our fleet and as we do that, one of the ways that you can de-risk the investment in the longer term is build in as much flexibility in the CapEx up front as you can tolerate so that you have more choices available to you later on for a particular ship without a major modification. And keep in mind, if you're building uh, a cruise ship might be a 40-year asset. It was before the pandemic. Uh, afterwards, it may be. Some cargo ships may be a 30-year asset. What is the optimal fuel for a particular ship or a particular deployment of a ship may change over that life cycle. So, you know, you might do yourself uh, a favor to think about not only can I make the ship compatible with one additional fuel as an alternative, but how hard would it be to adapt to yet another fuel throughout the life cycle of the ship? Because the picture could look different in 2035 than it does in, in 2030. We'll come back to some of those points, but Lassie, I'm, I mean, I made a joke. I mean, you know, you're, you're not an old man by any stretch, but, um, you know, if <laughs> you're genuinely you think, yeah. going to be working until we reach net zero, I think you have quite a few decisions to take. You've got a legacy fleet here. You've got ships that are perhaps older than you would perhaps want, given an ideal situation. That means you've got to take difficult flexibility decisions now, rather than the best case scenario in five years' time. Give us some idea of your thinking in terms of what that means practically right now. Well, first of all, let me start with, I think rhetorics matter. Um, and I think we should stop talking about how difficult it is and how many options and how, I mean, yes, there's uncertainty, but goddamn, I mean, the world is full of uncertainty. We have China, US, we have uncertainty all over. This industry is experts on managing uncertainty. 
Um, and the solutions out there, I mean, it's, it's not that many. Let's face it, unless you really believe in, uh, in, uh, in, uh, in, in, in um, nuclear, we have to start with electrons. And we can't get them on board effectively as hydrogen, so it's methanol or it's ammonia. And somebody needs to stick out their head, and I think companies like ourselves, and certainly yours, but I mean, with the big company you have, and show the way. Not sitting back, and, and of course we can have a big discussion saying, ah, we need to wait for, until the market is ready and fuel is available everywhere. Yes, it's always like that in the transition. Somebody needs to lean down and say, okay, I need this amount of fuel there, who can provide me? And then turn around and make sure they find customers willing to pay. And that's what happened in our company right now. We're saying we can't sit back and wait anymore. We have to get the customers on board. This year, we have told all customers, if you want to make more business with us, you need to start paying for decarbonization, and they do. Um, and our road, uh, and, and the way we see it, is that uh, the only option we have on energy transition now is biofuels as of today. Uh, and we are using that as much as we can, but there's a limited source. Within three to five years, we believe we can face in methanol, biomethanol, green methanol. And unfortunately, the way we see it, uh, ammonia is maybe five to ten years away. I hope I'm wrong, but that's not, uh, uh, it's most likely that. So for us, it's about demonstrating to that today that we can use biofuel, get the customers to pay for it. And we have said that by 2027, we will introduce the first zero emission service end-to-end. -end. We're in the industry of transporting cars and vehicles and excavators and stuff from, let's say, a factory in China to your door, Richard. In 2027, we have said we want to do that with zero emissions end-to-end. That really takes a big rally, and we can't wait for the market to be ready. We need to take some bold decisions, and we do that. I'm going to come back and ask you whether that results in a tiered market in just a second. But, Ingvild, I'm going to come to you next, because you said a while ago that you wanted your investments to be future-proofed. And I wonder what that means in the context of shuttle tankers, which is your core market. How do you future-proof an investment, given all this uncertainty that we just discussed? Well, I think I said that actually in the context in 2017, 2018, when we ordered uh, our last uh, class of shuttle tankers and where we didn't consider uh, ordinary vessels with uh, scrubbers to be future-proof because we didn't think it would survive 20 years of development and societal uh, demand on what we need to do. So we ordered um, um, dual fuel with batteries uh, capturing the VOC, uh, at that point in time, which was not an easy choice to make uh, from a financial point of view, but uh, you have to, as you say, Lasse, lean in a bit and, uh, and, and make some of those bold choices. But that being said, I think the, the key to really accelerate, uh, at least on the tanker side, is that we need to have new business models because it is actually possible to uh, to do some of these shifts and, and do it in a cost-efficient way. But as long as the capex and the opex and the fuel cost is going into different uh, pockets, that slows down the uh, development. Okay. We're going to come back to that as well. Um, but, Khalid, I mean, we've been talking here about assets, and of course it's not just about the assets, it's about the operational efficiency that we can apply and Scale helps, and let's face it, you've got a bit of scale in uh, your operation. Give us some opening thoughts in terms of you know, how that fleet efficiency can be improved and um, where the complexity lies and how we can overcome some of those 
decisions that are still laden with uncertainty, regardless of whether you're actually owning or just operating the assets. Yeah, exactly. So uh, we are an in-house manager of the fleet. So Bahari has, at the moment, 92 vessels. Majority are tankers. 40 of those are VLCCs. And about uh, 28, 29 IMO at the moment, chemical tankers. Efficiencies we have started actually back in 2014 and mainly because we were focused on reducing the fuel consumption. A reduction of fuel consumption that increases your profit margin at the end of the day. So that was the focus and that has worked very well also with the decarbonization. And since that time we have been deploying uh, technologies, I'm not going to name the names, but basically we were streaming the information from the vessels into the office. In fact, last year we've uh, inaugurated our fleet performance center so we can look at the fleet completely and get all data points, not only the fuel consumption, energy consumption, but all the alarms and indications to monitor the efficiencies. And that has been working very well. In addition, we have managed to convince within Bahri there are owners. We managed to convince them to invest in high... Uh, efficiency, high-quality painting, which is expensive to apply, full blasting of the hull, and you have these high coatings that are very expensive, they are reducing the fuel consumption, in addition to additional uh, fuel-saving devices, uh, you know, Mevis ducts, the boss cap, and all of these, these are not cheap items, but they are, we are benefiting from these installations that we've started back in 2014. So you have to look at the whole thing holistically to reduce the fuel and eventually reducing their carbon uh, footprint. But I would like to add to the, the subject of the uh, types of fuel as we go forward. It really depends on your profile as an operator. If you have fixed cargoes from A to B, it makes it easier for selecting that type of fuel. For example, on the VLCC side, as we carry the crude mainly from Saudi Aramco, it makes it logical for us to go with dual fuel using LNG because it's readily available within the region. And since you have fixed routes, it makes it more difficult, for example, on the chemical tankers because they're going everywhere depending on the cargo. Uh, you know, one thing we're looking at is methanol as well because SABIC, the Saudi uh, basic industry, also produces methanol so we can carry it as a cargo and use it as a fuel. But it's not an easy thing to do. Uh, you know, it's convincing the, uh, your supplier, convincing the customers to buy into the fuel, this is something we have been trying for some time. It's not easy to do, and I'm, you know, commend you for that. Uh, it is a major issue, but for the short term, I still believe LNG is the way to go. Christian, I deliberately left you to last because I suspected that this might come up. Um, you know, this relationship between the, uh, the charterer and the owner is, is key here. I mean, I said at the outset that you know, we're not necessarily just talking about decisions that individual ship owners can make because I don't believe that any individual ship owner can make that much of a difference. Your current passion is really sort of trying to improve that incentivization to get the right decisions. Give us a view in terms of how we can improve that. Because that's key here. Yeah, yeah, I think we heard a lot about uh, collaboration this morning, and we also hear that data is available, but all the contracts we, we fix the ships that are, are, are backdated and they have split incentive. Uh, uh, vessels are operated as per, by warranties uh, because of inaccurate data. We have lots of tolerances in the contract, so no one is really incentivized to, to improve. So. Uh, even though that we don't want another index, I, I, I saw last week that the DNV uh, released uh, a hearing about a, a recommended practice uh, for, uh, for a new index called uh, VTI, where you measure vessel's efficiency in, in, in real life. And, uh, and I think uh, if we have such an index or if we are able to transform like 
the aggregator into an index so owners are incentivized. I think we, we hear a lot about energy saving devices, but none of the contracts really uh, take that into account. You don't necessarily need to have a better CII because you have uh, energy saving devices if you are in port. Uh, so I think by changing the contracts, we can do quite a lot. And I think collaboration is more than just talk about it, but we need to have that implemented into, into contracts. Well, lastly, I mean, it's a perfect point to bring I, I just want to jump in there. I, I think, to back on that, the structure of the industry doesn't help in a transition because it's, it's set up in a way that really conforms yesterday, right? Uh, owners doing TCs and you have ship managers and there's so many layers uh, and each one is not incentivized and that's why owners like ourselves and others really have a responsibility to orchestrate that so um, but there's something extremely important happening right now and that is that carbon goes from being something we report to something we transact upon and that will completely change how we think around carbon I mean we're starting to pay for EU ETS now, when we are getting our customers to pay for reduced carbon emission, they are transacting on that basis. So the, uh, one of the big barriers in this industry is to create commonly trusted, available data on carbon so we can transact on it. And when you report, it's up to you to make it right. When you transact, it's something different. So there's a big change now that really is challenged by the structure of this industry. I mean, it, it's interesting, the VTI system that you mentioned, I, I, I don't think DNV described it as such, but I'm a journalist, so I'm allowed to describe it as such. It is effectively a patch on a deeply flawed CII system. Um, it makes us think differently about that relationship between the owner and the charterer. And I think if we're looking for a positive outcome of CII, that's one, that we are actually thinking about how we can better incentivize people a little bit more efficiently. You know, is, is the industry structurally flawed in terms of the charter contracts? Yeah, possibly. Ingvill, what do you think? No, I, 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 I fully agree, and I think that there, this uh, link between the, uh, or the incentivizing of uh, how you can make the savings uh, is extremely important, and, and the price of carbon will clear some of that. I also think that in we have now had a very efficient market where it is a commodity market and price is declaring. Uh, I think we need, for the transition that we need to go through, uh, think about it more in, in industrial terms and back to uh, what uh, uh, Knut was talking about also, collaboration. Uh, we don't have the right collaboration today. It's extremely difficult to get the the owners, uh, the charterers, financing, technology aligned. We need to think not only for the next quarter and the next and, and the bottom line today, but but how we can align it uh, in the in the longer term, which is lacking today. Easier said than done when you have to make quarterly reports to the market, of course. Yeah, but but the, what are we solving for? Uh, we are not solving for the next uh, quarter really as a society. But incentivization, do we, what can we do to improve this in your view? Yeah, thanks. I have to say the quarterly reports, we have many challenges. That's not one we have to deal <laughs> with, um, thankfully. Um, I, I think that there really does need to be uh, an enhanced level of collaboration. And, and um, I think uh, Lasse hit on a, a, a couple of points that I think were, were spot on. And, and, and one was, you know, it is really important that as ship owners, we don't sit back and say, woe is me. You know, the fuels aren't here. When are they ever going to be here? No, no, no. We have to be 
directly engage with the energy providers, make sure they know we want the fuels, that we will use them when they can produce them. And I think energy providers have to be part of the mix on this collaboration. And they have challenges when they get in the same room together sometimes because of, of competition concerns. But without them being part of the, the solution set here, it won't work overall. I also I heard a presentation recently, I'm not going to say exactly where, but I thought it was very interesting. You know, basically in our industry, we've got bareboat charters, we've got time charters, and we've got voyage charters, and then some variations of those. But those are basically the three options. And in today's world, and where, I mean, you take CII as an example. I mean, how are you ever really going to find a way to operate the ship in an optimal way by that metric, unless you're collaborating between the owner and a ship uh, and, and a charter in a way it hasn't happened before. Um, maybe there's a fourth way that's needed. And I was really intrigued by this kind of blue sky thinking that maybe we, we, we just don't have enough choices and we need to look at new ways to, to have charter parties actually reflect the world we're living in today, which at the end of the day, I mean, this isn't about who makes the best announcement or, or you know, who has the best sound bite in the moment. This is gonna be, did we effectively decarbonize? Because you know, future generations are counting on us to do our job properly here and we can't do it alone as ship owners. I think collaborative platforms, um, some of which you're gonna hear from here this week, but uh, such as the GCMD, the Lloyd's Hub, the, um, uh, the Maris McKinney Moeller Center as well, I think it's great. They're, they're really finding some unity of effort bringing us together and bringing diverse stakeholders together because that is what it is going to take. There's no one single actor. And in my opinion, even this sector, if you look at us being 4% of the fuel consumption worldwide, can drive energy markets. We even need to collaborate broader than just within ourselves, but also within other sectors that are large consumers as fuels. I mean, let's not discount sound bites as well. Think of the board journalists having to create some headlines out of this week. Come on. <laughs> Inkville, this is not a new conversation by any stretch, but I mean, what, what do you think? Are you getting the impression that this conversation is now moving on? Are we having real conversations about improving that collaboration? I think it's going far too slow. Um, um, I mean, we don't have the, the sense of urgency that we need to have, and I don't really understand uh, why, but as you say, we are making um, capital investments that will last for 20, 30 years. So the time to act is really now, even in 2050 uh, perspective. It, many of the decisions could be easily made if we had alignment between, if we didn't have those short-term contracts uh, or the voyage charters uh, and the economic benefit were actually, uh, uh, the economic benefit were used to to make these decarbonization initiatives. Uh, so um, I think we're going too slowly. Lassie, you've got your retirement on no, the line. Yeah, yeah, no, I, 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 I will retire late, that's for sure. <laughs> so, uh, but but that, I, I think it's, the fact now is that business is moving faster than regulation. And thank God we are. Because business needs to solve this and then regulation can help to scale it. But, but that's, and, and that's my only issue with this week's theme of partnership if it's used an ex, uh, as an excuse not to show leadership. Uh, because it's very easy to lean back and say, well, we have, don't have this, we don't have this, we, can, we have to collaborate on all this. I mean, we don't have time. We're leaders of this industry. I mean, I'm in this room, I can't see you all, but, but I mean, we need to take that personal responsibility to demonstrate that, that way. And I'll try to be specific on three things. So, okay, so what, where do we need partners? For what? One, we need partners on fuel. 
We will commit. We are willing to commit from 2027. If somebody can come up with green fuel imports we can use, we're willing to commit now. Two, we need partners on technology. This is going to be expensive, so we need partners that can don't, um, you know, reduce the cost of the transition with the new technology. That's why we invest in uh, looking into sales and wind and everything that can reduce the cost of the transition. And three, we need partners on data. Trustable, transactable data so that we can make this mechanism work of moving the liability from the ship owner all the way through to the consumer. Um, in these three things, we need risk, uh, partnerships, but that requires that we show leadership and tell what are we willing to do. I'm going to come to Bud in a second, but can I just pick you up on one point there? Do you genuinely think that the industry is moving ahead of regulation? We heard Kitak saying that he hopes, and I think we're going to hear from Fatini from the European Commission later on this afternoon saying the same thing, that there will be this eventual convergence between European and IMO regulation. Are we not in a situation where the majority of the industry are using this lack of regulatory clarity as a pretext for inaction? Yes, you're right. But let's then not talk about the majority of the industry, but those who are actually leading the industry. And that's my point. Uh, you will never move slower than regulations, because that's the nature of regulations. So, I mean, at best, there's a 1-1, one, one, right? I do think so. There are companies around the world. I mean, you can, the Maersk, I'm sure, MSC, others, Altera, are really showing the way on taking investments now, putting money in, leaning forward, and take commitments, and showing how this can be led. Uh, and again, I think we should be really glad for that. I mean, politicians are excellent, but not at defining business solutions. They are good at scaling good business solutions, not showing them. But I think I cut you off there. So. Yeah, thank you. Well, actually, you gave me something else I'd like to comment on, because <laughs> um, I, I, I agree with Lasse. I think in some respects, the industry is ahead of governments. And let's just look at one fundamental. For, what, two years now, Lasse? We've led industry efforts to say, hey, the answer is decarbonization by 2050. Now. You can tinker on the margins of what the definitions are, or this or that, but we as the industry have been united for two years now that the right answer is 2050, we need to decarbonize. Governments have had a long time to toss this back and forth, and they're now really at a critical juncture in July, which I think is a bit of a serious threat to the IMO if those governments do not help that organization succeed in this moment of time in the most important regulatory issue they'll probably ever face. Um, they have to catch up on that and put their geopolitical differences aside and find the middle ground. So I think that that's very important. When it comes to leadership, I also very much agree with, with Lassie. Leaders have to lead. And one of the reasons, though, I think that these collaborations are important is it shouldn't give cover to those that are saying, well, we're just gonna wait for the answer and not do anything. Because sitting around and waiting for the perfect um, to allow itself to prove it could be the enemy of the good uh, is, is not a good answer here. But those collaborative platforms are a way for those that are making investments, that are forward-leaning, that are exploring all the options, to share some of what they've learned with others in the industry that might not have the capability to do that themselves. So um, I think there is a role for these platforms, but it shouldn't be to hide behind the excuse, we're waiting for a platform to do this or that or this or that. Because my opinion, the industry will decarbonize with or without additional regulation, but the pace of that, of that progress towards decarbonization and whether or not it is truly an effective path that we are allowed to be on 
will largely be framed up by the regulations. And that's why I think it's also important we collectively give good, sound, practical input to the regulators as they're shaping that framework because that will have a big impact on how fast this happens. It's funny, I've never interviewed a ship owner that says, compliance is enough for me. They're always going ahead. And yet, the industry is basically just meeting compliance when you look at it holistically. And that is the problem, because we have to deal with the majority. While you are all here, and I've said it before, you know, you're representing 1,000 ships, that's great. But 80,000 ships are out there, and the vast majority of the shipping industry are basically moving along at the pace of global regulation, the lowest common denominator. So I'm going to repeat the question, and if anyone else wants to ask it, you know, are we using the fuels debate and the regulatory lack of progress as a pretext for inaction? Can I say something? At the end of the day, as an owner or an operator, you're in it to make money. Let's be very clear about this, no matter what is net zero. If you're going to lose money, you're not going to do it. So therefore, the common denominator will always be the regulation. Uh, you know, again, I commend you and others that are you're taking the lead. But unless you have the cargo owner as well as, as your partner who's willing to spend the additional bucks, to install whatever you need to install or to decarbonize faster, it's difficult to do. So you need that collaboration when, you know, Knut says collaboration. So, so there is no doubt in doing that. But for any other ship operator or ship owner who's out there in the spot market, you're in it to make the money. So you go with the minimum regulation required and you make the money. To take the leadership, you really have to have that marriage between the cargo owner, the ship owner, and the ship operator. Otherwise, difficult to do because you have to spend money on it. And I want to make money and a difference, uh, and I think that's possible. So um, just back to regulations. Regulations is key. I mean, we need regulations. I mean, I'm, that's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying we can't sit back and wait for regulations, but we need to work as hard as age to get regulations. And we need market-based re um, uh, regulations, right? I mean, what we've had up to now, technical regulations, that's only dealing with the energy efficiency, not the transition. The transition away from fossil fuel, that's need, that needs a market mechanism, and that's why Kitak, uh, I think uh, we're quite lucky. He has it last year in service, and he's going to leave with a legacy and putting some, some of this together. Uh, and back to Bud's point, it sounds very theoretical, but it's exceptionally important what's going on in IMO now, mm. setting the target for 2050. Two reasons. One is today, if we have the current target, we will meet it with hardly any green fuels. We can just do it by efficiency. If you take it to zero, you need to have a complete workover in 30 years and change the complete fuel base. And that needs to start now. So it's extremely important where you put that point in terms of what will we do. The second reason why is the only way they can stay relevant. It's not going to be a question of if we need to reach zero in 2050. I mean, look at, this, at the kids at the street. They tell us you need to. It's just a question of when do we realize as an industry that we will. And if we start to realize in the mid-30s, you have 15 years left of your vessel, and certainly there will be zero latest by 2050, it's going to be a disaster. So this is not a question of whether, it's just a question of realizing early enough so we can make proper decisions. I don't disagree with you, and I, I, I agree with you, but that this year represents a key pivotal moment in terms of that trajectory. But increasing the trajectory from 2050, you know, 50% to 2050, somewhere around net zero, that really just increases the level of the trajectory that we're looking at. Ultimately, if everybody does nothing until the 31st of December 2049, then we haven't really moved the dial. And the key thing that I think is being missed in this debate is the fact that actually the hard work comes after MEPC 80. Just agreeing the strategy is not enough. You actually need those market-based mechanisms. You need a carbon price. 
and all of these discussions that we're going to be having here today, all of the reports, the Ricardo DMV report, the Trafigura report that we saw last month, they're all saying the same thing. This is possible, but only if we have clarity in terms of the clear demand signals and the regulatory environment in which we can operate. Are you in any way optimistic that we're going to get that? I am absolutely optimistic. Uh, I, I have to be uh, in my line of work, and I think most of us do. But uh, you know, I think there's a couple of fundamental principles here. I mean, we have to be creative, we have to be open-minded, and we have to be optimistic. I really think we have to believe we can get there, and I'm not an ideologue. I don't say that just because I want it to happen. I say that because I've been working at it really, really hard, and I've had the pleasure to work with some of the people that are really leading the charge on not just identifying the problem, but identifying solutions. And I am confident we will get there. It will not be easy. It will not be uniform. There will be bumps in the road. But um, one example is, Richard, I congratulate you for finding a silver lining in the CII <laughs> that it's focused attention on um, some things that need attention here. But you know, is intensity really that helpful of a metric if you're talking about that type of intensity as opposed to greenhouse gas intensity as a fuel characteristic? Um, is that really a metric that's all that helpful if, as I anticipate, we'll all be speaking the same language that we're talking about decarbonizing the industry by 2050, not decarbonizing in terms of per unit carried? Because there's so many variables that come with that, even if you have a better metric than we have right now, that I think the effort's much better spent working on a fuel standard. I, I think that has a much better opportunity, and to Lasse's point, in combination with an economic or market-based measure, we tend to say, I think, economic measure now, because uh, it's a little more politically palatable, but you probably need both of those to create the right framework and help with the right trajectory. Christian. Yeah, just to add on, on bots there with the, I mean, with the CII and the issue for contracts in, in terms of, of, of CII, uh, I mean, we, we, have, we have seen no one so far in the dry industry have ever accepted the BIMCO CII clause, and I think it's it's just I mean the opposite of collaboration. I mean we need these contracts to be updated uh, and and changed so they are a common sense uh, to do some improvements. Thank you. No, I just think that a very important part of that decarbonisation journey is also uh, CCS and the opportunities that. Uh, that gives, and uh, uh, so uh, in 2027, we will have used our carbon <coughs> budget. After that, every emitted uh, ton will uh, build, to debt, build debt to our children. Uh, in Europe, there will be a need of 300, 200, 300 million tons of CO2 uh, in 2030. And, and it builds to, I mean, enormous figures in 2050. Uh, but today, already, the price of carbon in Europe is uh, um, allowing carbon to be stored at the, uh, below that uh, cost. So the moment that we get that industry going, and it's not far away as we thought five years ago, it's actually here, it can actually be done from 2027, and it will be an enormous market that opens up also for the maritime uh, industry. I mean, uh, 200 million tons, you would need 200 uh, Northern Light projects. So that is the scale of it. And I think there will be enough CO2 for everyone. 
<laughs> and, and, you, 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 and you ask if we're positive, and, and I would say I'm, I'm tactically negative and principally positive, and I'll explain why. And tactically, because I think we run around and make this too complex and too difficult when we talk about how difficult it is. I mean, this is, these are within the merit of what we can solve, technology-wise, fuel-wise. We know basically what we should do, we just need to get our act together. And, 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 and principally, I'm positive, partly because what Ingrid said, the technology development is unbelievable. I heard one place that now you can capture, transport, and store carbon in Europe for $100 or less. Yeah. That's more or less the same as the ETS. So basically now you can take it out as cheap as to pay your way out of it. I mean, technology is moving. And for shipping, the reason why I'm principally positive is that it's damn cheap for the society. You see all these examples, and we can do it on what, what's the difference on the car, or what's the difference on the bread, or what's the difference on... I mean, we can decarbonize very cheaply for the society as long as we get the orchestration measures in place so that we can move that cost from a business-to-business -business relationship between an owner or a manager or whatever you have to the consumer. For the society, it's cheap. And that's why it should be possible for IMO to get this through. I was reading a, a, a note. I should have been listening, but I was reading a note from Stephen Gordon from Clarkson's uh, came in as we were speaking earlier. And he was saying, you know, there are implications for earnings, potentials, asset values, and increasingly tiered and complex charter markets as the green fleet transition evolves. And I wonder, you know, lastly, on your point, and actually part of yours as well, you know, we're going to get that lumpy. It's not going to be even. We are going to have a tiered market. Do you think that's inherently problematic? Or can this, uh, you know, blue chip, uh, ambitious, progressive set that we see on stage here, do you have enough gravitational pull to take the rest of us with you? You ask me, or I'm well, I'm asking all of other, you. We've got two yes, minutes. Yes, I do left. think so. Yes, definitely. My ambition is to make it so uh, challenging to be on the wrong side of that story that my customers cannot do anything but doing its zero emission. That's our target. Can I be the naysayer here? Please. And I'm totally saying well, no. I don't, I don't think we have <laughs> enough cynicism on this stage. <laughs> That's so fine. Because I can fully understand what you're saying, and I and I get the feeling uh, and not shipping. This is really a Euro European perspective. I'm coming from outside of Europe, so it's going to be extremely difficult because it goes down to cost at the end of the day. If you're in the spot market, you're just going to follow minimum regulation requirements. Although we all have ambitions to remove that 3% that we produce globally. But it's going to take almost a trillion dollars if you look at the numbers. So it's going to be tough, Larson. I, I commend you in Europe. Your take, you have the EU ETS, and maybe eventually it will, uh, it will go over, uh, over uh, everywhere else. But uh, for outsiders, it's not easy. It's not uh, easy to follow the EU. I don't say it's easy, but we have customers in China, in Japan, in the US, in Europe, in the Middle East that are willing to pay for decarbonization. So it, it's possible, but it's easier to see from a European perspective. I see that. So. Christian, final comments. No, I think, I mean, I, I agree with Les. I think the market will find its own way. We saw that with scrubbers, with everything, that uh, it's supply demand driven. So, uh, and there will be incentive to improve. And we saw also that with the VMR presentation that the more efficient ships, fuels will be more expensive going forward. So there will be incentive to do these investments. And you're not worried about the tiered aspect of that market? Mm, that we have had tiers market uh, always, I think, that uh, in, in different uh, views. So there have always been better ships and others invest before others, so uh, I'm not too nervous about that. Ingvild, your carbon capture ambitions, do you have enough gravitational pull to pull the rest of us with you? Well, uh, I think there is enough uh, gravitation in the world to, 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 to really 
make that happen. And if we see the uh, speed that the EU is, uh, is uh, working at uh, now for CCS, for instance, uh, I think that gives really big hopes for what we can achieve. Right, I'm going to give the last word to you. Give us some inspiration to end on. Yeah, we could do this. And Lars is right. The technology is improving rapidly. The fuel um, providers know we need the fuels as, as part of the package. They're going to provide for all of society. We just need to stay committed. We need a regulatory framework that is sensible, practical, and doesn't lead us in the wrong direction and helps us get there on with enough pace to where we can meet our obligations to do our part as the two to three percent um, that we are today, which is significant. We've got to do our part, but I really think we can do it. Uh, we just need to pull together and share what we've learned with each other and continue to have these collaborative platforms um, succeed in, in, in their efforts as well and not overlap each other, but rather complement each other. Thank you. See? Easy. Decarbonize the inter entire industry in under 30 minutes. So, you know. <laughs> Uh, congratulations, and um, thank you to our panel. A round of applause, if you don't mind.